Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, uh, in this second week of our Advent series, we're going to be looking at the theme of the kingdom in Scripture. Um, Again, as I mentioned last week, I think one of the best ways to uh, prepare our hearts for Christmas, for the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, is to look at the big storyline of Scripture and to see how Jesus really is the fulfillment of thousands of years of waiting, thousands of years of hoping, and to see the darkness as it was before the dawn of Jesus Christ. And that's certainly the case when we look at this idea, this theme of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will soon see stretches from the very first page of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible. And there was a famous kingdom in Scripture in particular, the kingdom, the the nation of Israel. And that kingdom lasted for over 450 years. It was a very long kingdom. And yet even that kingdom ultimately failed. And the people of God were wondering when that kingdom failed, what was going to happen? What kind of dawn could come out of this darkness? And so we're going to read from four different sections of Scripture now to get a sense of that narrative, to get a sense of what happened in Scripture. And then again, I'll come and preach for us on this theme of the kingdom of God. So first, uh, Christy will come and read for us from Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. This is the covenant that God makes with David, where he promises to David that a king will sit on his throne forever and ever. So this is God promising a kingdom to his people. So we're going to read that in 2 Samuel 7. After that, Sarah will come and read for us from Psalm 89. This is a psalm of lament, something that was written after the kingdom fell and the people of God were wondering, what's going on? I thought you promised to David that there would be a king forever and ever, but now there's no king. What are you doing, God? So we'll read that in Psalm 89. After that, we'll read the the ray of hope that comes to us in Luke 1, the announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary, and Paul will read that for us. And then lastly, we'll read the ultimate hope that we have. Don will come and read for us Revelation eleven fifteen that tells us of the kingdom of Christ that we have to look forward to. And so, would you prepare your hearts now for hearing God's word? Uh, Christy, if you want to come on up and get us started. Second Samuel 7, 8 through 17. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you shall be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them there, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made for sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 89, verses 38 to 46 and 49. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Revelations eleven fifteen. <clears throat> then the seventh trumpet, and then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, again, the theme of God's kingdom really runs throughout Scripture. It enters most clearly and pointedly in Second Samuel 7, which we read, where David is promised the heir that will always sit on his throne forever and ever. But really, even from the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1, we see the idea of kingship. After all, in Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced to a God who created everything. And when he creates mankind, he gives mankind dominion over everything else that he has made. In other words, God is depicted as king, as ruler over all the cosmos because he's the one who created it. And man is depicted as something of a, a sub-king, a sub-regent. He's given dominion over the things that God has created on the earth. And so the idea of kingship really comes from the very beginning of Scripture. And there are other highlights along the way. Again, in 2 Samuel 7 is where the kingdom is first established. And then as we go on through the Bible, we see that kingdom eventually fade. But then again, as we read in the book of Revelation, we see that there is a day coming when the kingdom that God established, even there at the very beginning at Genesis 1, the kingdom that he reestablished at 2 Samuel 7, where that kingdom will come back and will last forever and ever. And yet, again, the clearest picture that we're given of kingdom in Scripture and what is the kingdom of God, the clearest picture we're given, does come to us beginning in First and Second Samuel. In First Samuel, the people of Israel are clamoring for a king. They realize that all the other nations around them have a king and they don't have a king and they want to be like the other nations. And so they're insisting that God give them a king. God doesn't necessarily think it's a good idea. But he decides that 
It would serve his purposes well, and so he grants the people a king. He establishes the first king of Israel is King Saul. King Saul ultimately becomes a failure, and in place of King Saul, David, a shepherd boy, is anointed in his place. Now, because God is with David, David succeeds enormously. He accomplishes things for the nation of Israel. He expands God's kingdom in a way that would have been unimaginable before David came onto the scene. And because of David's great faithfulness, when David establishes his throne in Jerusalem, in the city that God has chosen, God makes this covenant. He makes this promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that we read where he promises David that someone from his lineage, one of his ancestors, will always sit on the throne. That David's kingdom, that David's line, will be established forever and ever. And so, for much of the rest of the Old Testament, that's the very story that we see played out. For the rest of First and Second Samuel, then we have the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and those books are largely telling the story of David's descendants. Indeed, it's amazing how long the kingdom, the line of David, lasted. If you go through the books of First and Second Kings, you get no less than nineteen kings who were children of David to come after him. Again, this line of David lasts for over 400 years, longer than our country, longer than America has been in existence. That's how long this lineage of David lasted. And so as we read all of that, we're always supposed to be remembering 2 Samuel 7. We're always supposed to be remembering what God promised to David as the only explanation for how the line of David would last so long. Indeed, it wasn't long after David was king where the kingdom of Israel was split in two and the northern kingdom went their own way and then the southern kingdom was the kingdom that kept belonging to the heirs of David. And the northern kingdom scarcely lasted 150 years after breaking off from the southern kingdom because they didn't have that that covenant with David to preserve them, to keep them. And yet the southern kingdom, ruled by heirs of David, goes on generation after generation after generation. Again, for 14 generations and 19 kings, the heirs of David rule over the southern kingdom, rule over Judah. I mean, just imagine if, if, if you were the, the 14th son of David to be ruling over Judah. I mean, how many greats would you have to say before you got to your great-grandfather David? You know, we in America, again, we cannot fathom that. I don't even know who three generations is before I'm standing here today. And yet, because of God's faithfulness, David's line down to the 14th generation could look back and say that David was their father and God keeps his covenant to David. And yet, and one of the great wonders of Scripture, this kingdom does come to an end. The line of David is not able to go on forever. And surely, one of the most bittersweet passages in all the Bible, we come to the very end of the book of 2 Kings, in 2 Kings 24, and we read this about the very last king, the very last heir of David who sat on the throne. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. 
And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. Jehoiachin, that's the son of David. Himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen, and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And so this is the end. Jehoiachin taken into captivity. His wives, children taken into captivity. All the other heirs of David taken into captivity. All the gold, the good of the land taken into captivity. Now, in place of Jehoiachin, The king of Babylon actually sat Jehoiachin's uncle on the throne, so still someone else in the line of David. His uncle was named Zedekiah, and here's how Zedekiah came to an end. It says Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out. From his presence, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And so such is the end, it seems, of the line of David. The last thing Zedekiah sees is his sons being killed and then his eyes are gouged out and he is taken as a slave. Could there be a more dismal end? A more disheartening end to this great covenant that lasted over 400 years. Well, in the very final words of Second Kings, we get this little ray of hope. It says that the king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. So Jehoiachin, who'd been taken captive, he was freed. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. And that's the end of the story of the line of David, in the Old Testament at least. And so it seems that David's line has come to an end. The only ray of hope they have is Jehoiachin sitting in captivity in Babylon, being given an allowance by the emperor of Babylon. Not exactly a great and lofty picture of David and his line or of God's faithfulness to David. And so the people of Israel reflect on this loss, on this killing of Zedekiah, on this captivity of Jehoiachin, on this end of David's line. And like we read in Psalm 89, it's this longing psalm saying, Now have you cast off and rejected? You are full of wrath against your anointed. That means against your king. You have renounced 
the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. Indeed, this whole section of the Psalter in the 80s here, these Psalms of Asaph, they're all reflecting on this loss of the kingdom, on the end of the Davidic line. Psalm 85 says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. So remembering what God had done and then saying, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Or Psalm 80, O Lord God of hosts, How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Can you hear the ache in their souls, the sense of loss that they have? I mean, they knew the covenant that God had made with David. They knew that God said to David, said to him that someone from your throne will sit on the throne. Someone from your line will sit on the throne forever and ever. And here they are in the dust. There is no king in Jerusalem. The kingdom seems to have ended. God's promises seem to have failed. And so they are simply devastated. And us as people who Believe in God, who believe in the faithfulness of God. How shocking should it be for us that the line of David did fall? I mean, if God promised that someone from the line of David would sit on the throne forever, how could it be that no one from David's line is sitting on the throne? It seems like God's word has failed, like God didn't know what he was doing. I mean, what hope could there possibly be in the wake of this huge disruption, this huge surprise that God's covenant to David wouldn't come true in the way that it seemed so clear that it was supposed to. Well, God was very clear why the covenant to David ultimately failed, why the heirs of David ultimately had to be removed, and that reason was gross disobedience. They did not listen to the Lord. They were not faithful to him. They served other gods. One of the clearest examples of this, one of the most evil sons of David, one of the most evil kings in Israel's history was named Manasseh. Listen to just a little bit of what Manasseh did. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord, and he burned his sons as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So this is the evil of Manasseh. And God's response to Manasseh 
is very clear. God sends his prophets, and this is what he says by his prophets. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. And so that seems to be it, does it not? God's saying, your evil has gone far enough. Your wretchedness, your sins are so awful, I can no longer bear them in my sight. And so he removes Israel as a kingdom. He removes the line of David, even though he had promised to David that someone would sit on his throne forever and ever. The disobedience was simply too much. Now, it's important for us to see this narrative for ourselves because we know that the character of God does not change. Amen? And if we ourselves want to realize more of the kingdom of God in our own day, if we want to see the kingdom of God built today, established today, expanding today, we ourselves must recognize the role that obedience plays in this expansion of God's kingdom and the role disobedience will play in the ruin of this kingdom. Now today, our primary idols are not Baal or Molech or Asherah. Right? We don't set up idols the way they did in ancient times, but be assured that we still have our idols, do we not? Our idols are called self, pleasure, comfort. Our idols are other people and their opinions of us. And so we live to please ourselves. We live to be well thought of by others. And so even though we don't have the same idols that we've constructed, we nevertheless live as polytheists looking at everyone else around us as our God, as the ones who have judgment over us, as the ones we are to please. We serve other people. We serve our own selfish desires rather than serving the Lord. And because this is how we live, because this is how we are so bent to live, always looking after number one, taking care of ourselves, because this is our heart attitude, the kingdom of God cannot come. The kingdom of God cannot be established. I mean, we might not feel God's judgment quite as viscerally as the people of Israel did. You know, Babylon isn't coming here to wipe us out. And yet be assured that our sin, our wickedness, is no less odious to God than that of Manasseh's or that of the many other kings who ultimately brought God's judgment upon Israel. We grasp after our own pleasure. We grasp after our own glory. And because we do this, we ultimately end up losing it. 
Because God is not pleased with our self-interestedness. He's not pleased with how we always try to please others and live for others. And so the kingdom that we thought we were getting, the kingdom that we thought we could achieve by our own self-interest, we end up never being able to achieve. And so the kingdom of God seems absent. And so this is what the people of Judah felt when they lost their king. This is what we so often feel when we long for more of God's kingdom in the world, and yet we see our own sin. We see sinfulness all around us. We see darkness instead of light. We see failure instead of success. We see things going downhill instead of things flourishing. And it's when we fully see this darkness, when we fully appreciate this darkness, when we appreciate the wretchedness of our own sin, the consequences of our own sin, when Christmas can shine as a brightness that it's supposed to shine with. Christmas is supposed to be joy to the world. It is supposed to be good news of great joy. That's what the angels say. And why is it good news of great joy? Well, it's good news of great joy because the kingdom, that mankind, that even we here crushed by our own disobedience, this kingdom is coming back to life. And how is this kingdom coming back to life? Well, we read in Luke 1, 31 to 33, that God is sending his own son. God is sending his own son who will also be in the line of David. And this son, this king that is being born, will be the one to fulfill the promise of 2 Samuel 7. He will be the one who sits on David's throne forever and ever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end, as Gabriel the angel says. Now, even in the Old Testament, even when the kingdom was crumbling, the people of Israel should have known to look forward to this hope. One of the greatest Christmas passages there is is in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so we celebrate the birth of Jesus because we celebrate the king coming into the world. The king who will finally fulfill this long promise given to David, whose kingdom will last forever and whose kingdom will never fall. But of course, with Jesus being sent even in this way, there's still a huge question mark, right? Because we know why the kingdom in the Old Testament failed. We know why David's line could not endure. It was because of disobedience. That's why the kingdom was ultimately crushed. And so we might celebrate a king being born. We might celebrate Jesus coming into the world, but we're still left with this question, well, how is our disobedience going to be any different than the disobedience of David's children? I mean, won't our own disobedience cause this kingdom to fall apart? Won't the the mess that is mankind, 
The sinfulness that is mankind, won't it shatter this kingdom just like it shattered every other kingdom to come before it? How could Jesus possibly establish a kingdom that will last forever and ever? And this is where the good news of Christmas really becomes good news. This is where it becomes gloriously good news. We see the first hint of how Jesus himself can establish this kingdom before he begins his ministry. He's led out into the desert by the devil himself, and he is tempted. Satan tries to get him to disobey God. In fact, one of the temptations that Satan used against him in Luke chapter 4 is he says to Jesus, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. So he's offering him all the kingdoms of the world. If you will worship me, then all of this will be yours. So we have this question now, right? What is Jesus going to do? Is he going to walk in the way of all the other sons of David, grasping after the kingdom in his own strength, for his own selfish desires, for the fear of man? No. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus himself is able to overcome this temptation that Satan himself throws before them. He is able to be the obedient king where no other king before had been the obedient king. He is able to be more righteous, more perfect than David himself was. And we all know the horrible sin of David that showed that David himself was not the Messiah. And yet Jesus comes. He is pronounced to be king. And then he actually backs it up by living perfectly righteous before God. And the pinnacle of this obedience, the pinnacle of Christ's perfection, comes when he is willing to die on the cross. Philippians chapter 2 says this, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how obedient Jesus was. Even when obedience to God the Father was going to kill him, he remained obedient. He did not waver in obedience to God his Father, even when it meant certain death. Because Jesus was obedient to that degree, because he was obedient to that level, Philippians 2 tells us, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see how Jesus' kingdom is established? Do you see how Jesus can be the king that truly will reign forever and ever, whose kingdom will never end? Because his obedience could never be surpassed. His obedience could never be questioned. He had no idolatry in his soul. He never served himself. He never let the fear of man drive him. He was perfect in his obedience. And because he was perfect in his obedience, God gives him a perfect kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And so Jesus 
is the ultimate king to sit on that throne of his father, David. And what this means for us is that if we can see Jesus in that way, if we can look to Jesus and behold his obedience and behold how the Father cared for him in the midst of his obedience, then we ourselves will be freed from this power of self, from the power of idolizing others, to be able to serve the living God in obedience in every way. You see, so often our our desire to just serve ourselves, to take care of ourselves, comes from the fact that we don't really believe that God is going to take care of us, right? We think, if I'm obedient to God in every way, then I'm just going to be miserable, you know? Other people are going to take advantage of me, and I'm just going to be doing hard things all the time. I'll never even be able to sleep because of how I'm going to have to break my back every moment, doing everything God wants me to do. And so we look to God as this hard taskmaster, as one whom we could never possibly please. And because we look to God in that way, we think we have to carve out the section of our lives where, you know, we just take care of ourselves. Or we think that if we just serve God all the time, then, then other people are going to think we're just religious fanatics. You know, we're just radical and nobody's going to like us. We're not going to have any friends. We're just going to be miserable. And so we think these low and demeaning thoughts of God. And because we think these low and demeaning thoughts of God, we try to preserve ourselves. We try to take care of ourselves instead of simply walking in obedience to the living God. But you see, Jesus is the one who shows us that that's all a lie. Because again, Jesus, even though he was obedient to the point of death, I promise you to almost no one here, God is going to call you to be obedient to the point of death, right? He might call you to be obedient to some really hard things, but I don't think God is going to call any of you here to die a martyr's death. But Jesus was obedient to the point of death. And look what he got. He got resurrection from the dead. He got an everlasting kingdom. So even when Jesus was obedient to the point of death, the Father so loved him and cared for him that he has eternal joy. Beloved, whatever kind of obedience God calls you to, no matter how hard it seems or how easy it seems or anywhere in between, God is able to provide for you much more than whatever it is you may give up. Even if you have to give up your very life, God is able to give it back to you again. Even if you have to give up all of your finances, God is able to make his blessings overflow to you in the age to come. Even if you have to give up all your friends, God can give you a family that will last forever, that will be closer than any fickle human on earth could ever be. You see, Jesus, through his perfect obedience... And through his attainment of a perfect kingdom shows us that if we ourselves are willing to be obedient to God as king in every way, then we ourselves can get the inheritance that Jesus himself got, that we have nothing to lose and we have everything to gain. And so when we wonder how can it be that the kingdom of Christ will be established in a way that the kingdom of David could never be established, we see, first of all, the perfection of Jesus Christ assures that his kingdom will last forever. But then we see that through Jesus Christ, we are given eyes of faith to see the goodness of God 
which ultimately breaks the power of disobedience, breaks the power of idolatry, of self-interest, so that we are then free to serve the living God, to be obedient to him. And so then the kingdom of God, even among us, even within Providence Church, and outside of Providence Church, as we look at the true church of God around the world, that the kingdom of God truly can be established and truly can grow. You see, it's when we look to Jesus, when we look to his kindness to us in dying for us, when we look at the kindness of God the Father in providing for him, that we see we have everything that we need. This is why Jesus says in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. You see, ultimately, the establishment of God's kingdom now does not rest on our own obedience, on our own perfection. It rests on the perfection of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ has won that perfect obedience, therefore he is able to give us the kingdom. And because he gives us the kingdom, as scripture also says, we are able to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else is added to us. We don't have to be anxious for these things. We don't have to look out for number one. We can serve God as king and trust that he will provide everything that we need. And so, beloved, if you can behold Jesus in that way, if you can look to Jesus right now and you can say, Jesus, your obedience, your faithfulness is beautiful to me. And because of what you have done, I know that the Father will give me everything I need. If you can say that from your heart this morning, then you get to belong to God's kingdom even now. You get to be part of the kingdom of Christ that was established at his resurrection, that is growing across the world even now, and that will one day, as we read in Revelation 21, will one day return to earth in full measure and be perfectly established. You can be part of that heavenly kingdom as you look to Jesus with eyes of faith, knowing that he is the great and the only king. Mark 4.30, Jesus gives us a parable of this kingdom to give us hope, to help us see how wonderful the kingdom of Christ really is. There, Mark writes, Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Beloved, this is our longing. This is our hope even now, that even though the seed of the kingdom is the smallest of all the seeds, even though it was one man who died and who rose again, that now through that one man, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good, the glorious news of Jesus' obedience to the point of death is being proclaimed around the world. And this one little seed is growing up into this huge tree so that all the nations will one day glorify and honor Jesus as King. And so we ourselves, as we look with eyes of faith to that great sacrifice that Jesus made, we live as part of his kingdom. And we spread the good news of this kingdom, both here in Pittsburgh and to the ends of the earth, knowing that the kingdom of God surely will last 
forever and ever and can never be destroyed. And so labor for that kingdom, beloved. Don't just look after your own self-interest. Don't walk in disobedience to God, thinking that that's going to get you somewhere where obedience to God never could. There is a kingdom that will last forever. There is a kingdom that will grow for all eternity. Be part of that kingdom by serving God the King with obedient hearts, even now, looking to Christ as the great champion with eyes of faith. Would you go to God with me now in prayers of intercession and confession before him? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to perfectly establish the kingdom that every other human being failed to establish. We praise you that through Jesus Christ, we see, we know that you will care for us in every way. And you will not let one of our deeds, our words done for your kingdom, you will not let one of them fall to the ground unnoticed. But you will look after everyone and you will store up for us treasures in the eternal kingdom that will never fade away. So help us, God, to live for that kingdom. Help us to give up our own selfish, small kingdoms and to instead live for your kingdom, God. And in this way, may you get glory for your Son through us. Would you hear our prayers now?